Good morning, everyone. I'm Tim Froze. Uh, most of you probably know me from Sunday morning running sound and making sure others are heard instead of speaking in front of the mic myself. Boy, I miss seeing all of you in person each week. And it's an honor and a privilege to be able to serve you this week by bringing the message. A few weeks ago, Pastor Greg messaged me to ask if I would be willing to preach on Esther chapters 8 to 10. And before remembering it or reading it, I happily thanked him for the opportunity and said, I'd love to. Later on in the day, I got around to reading the text and had one of those moments of, oh no, what have I done? Because it's a challenging text. Uh, it's, it's hard. So let's, uh, let's look together at the source of my discomfort. In our series through the book of Esther, we've, we've heard that Esther was a Jew who found favor with King Xerxes, ruler of the Persian Empire. And she was given the role of queen. Um, the, the king's prime minister, his name is Haman, and he's an Amalekite. And he hated Esther's uncle Mordecai. And because of this hate and the disrespect he felt from Mordecai, Haman gets royal assent from King Xerxes to slaughter all of the Jews living in the Persian Empire everywhere. As Pastor Jonathan shared last week, Esther risked her life, revealing her full identity to the king and exposing this plot of Haman. Haman is put to death by the king. He is impaled on the very pole that he had set up in hopes of using on Mordecai. Not too bad yet, right? I mean, a little bit graphic there at the end, but then not really a surprise uh, from an ancient Persian king, given the practices of ancient empires. So we pick up our story here in, in chapter 8. And following the, the death of Haman, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the property of Haman, which Esther then gives to her uncle Mordecai, and then Mordecai also inherits the role of prime minister of the king that was formerly held by Haman. So all is well that ends well, yeah? Well, not so fast. The royal decree that the Jews be destroyed by their enemies on the 13th day of the 12th month still stands. And in Persian law, no decree or law made by the king can be revoked. Xerxes is a bit of a hands-off kind of king on these matters, and so he tells Esther and Mordecai that they may write their own edict in response to the existing one, and seal it with the king's authority. So Mordecai, now with kingly authority, writes a new edict and sends it to all corners of the Persian Empire, stating that on the same day that they are to be attacked, the Jews all over Persia may gather to defend their lives, to destroy to kill and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Feeling uncomfortable yet? Throughout Persian lands, there was great rejoicing at this news among the Jews, and many folks, presumably from other backgrounds, even declared themselves to be Jews upon hearing this news. In chapter 9, when the 13th day of the 12th month arrived, enemies of the Jews all over Persia attacked them. But together with the Persian authorities who now aided them 
the Jewish forces overcame their attackers and destroyed them. 75,000 enemies were destroyed that day. But the Bible says the Jews did not lay their hands on the plunder of their enemies. In the Persian capital of Susa, the Jews also prevailed there, killing 500 enemies. After which, Queen Esther asks King Xerxes for a second day to defend themselves against their attackers. Prevailing on the second day against their enemies, including the death and humiliation of Haman's ten sons. It is explained how this event is the origin of the Jewish feast of Purim to celebrate how the Jews were saved from their enemies. So any of that make you uncomfortable? If so, I'm right there with you. And if not, I'll do my best to get you there with me. Um, as we, as I see it, there are, there are two problems that I see arise, which feed uh, from the main question that the whole book is exploring. The, the first is the problem in the text, which is the fact that even after Haman has been killed, the edict to kill the Jews still remains. And this is no small thing. Remember, the Jewish people were God's chosen people, and through them he would bless the whole world. The promise of blessing the whole world had not yet been realized. And so if all the Jews get annihilated here, the whole plan of God would seem to be defeated. That's a pretty big problem. So at the beginning of chapter 8, we're left wondering, is God working in this? Is God going to save his people? Is he going to still bless the world through them? And how so, since God hasn't even been mentioned yet in this story or in this book? And then there's the second problem. And it's my big source of discomfort and it's not so much a problem in the text as it is a problem with the text and what happens. And that is, if God's hand is in this, if he is working in this difficult scenario, then how does God, who is supposed to be full of love and mercy, provide an edict that calls his people to take vengeance upon their attackers? including women and children. Or maybe it's just children that's the problem here, since equality is important and Mordecai was just a man of equality before his time. But even killing? Why did they have to utterly destroy all their attackers? Couldn't, couldn't they just arrest them? I mean, Spider-Man probably could have webbed them all if he'd been there and then they'd be arrested. So... Couldn't there have been a way to simply subdue their enemies without killing them? Like retracting the first edict. What kind of empire can function where a king can't retract his own laws if he wants? If I were king, I would certainly want to be able to do that in case I made a bad law, which could maybe happen once or twice by accident. If you talk to my kids... Um, yeah, sometimes the rules I make at home aren't always great and I have to let go of some of those, right? 
So you see the questions that roll through me, and perhaps you too, when we think about the killing, or even the type of killing, that took place here. You see why some would prefer if we just took Esther out of Scripture altogether. But then, if I do that, am I seeking to understand God for who he really is? Or am I trying to make him out to be who I want him to be? So we have the question of will God intervene? And the question of God's justice which informed the overarching problem, which is really the question that's being asked in the background of the whole book. Is God still present, still good, when I can't understand how he's working? When he seems to be hidden? I think we wrestle with these types of questions all the time. Is God still God when I can't see immediately how what he's doing is good? Does he still exist, even if I can't see him working in obvious ways, like through miraculous uh, signs and things like that? Is he at work, even in the conflicts and movements of, pol of politics and nations that so often seem broken and perfect? Is he at work even through people who are imperfect? People whom I know and who I know their faults. Is he still bringing about his promises and his purposes, even when he seems hidden from our sight? My friend John and I were having a conversation along these lines recently. And John struggles with mental health. A result of this is that part of his journey in faith has involved him hearing God speak to him very clearly in his mind much of the time. Lately, he's been having some improvements in his mental health, with, which is good, with the one side effect that he doesn't hear God in quite the same obvious way that he's become accustomed to. So the other day, he asked me, am I losing my faith if I can't hear God in the same way anymore? Is it because God has left me? Is God still just as present as he was before? Great questions. When we have difficulty perceiving God's presence, we are left wondering if we are alone. Or when we have difficulty understanding God's justice in relation to an event, we can find ourselves questioning his goodness and as a result, his presence. Like whether God is at work in such a brutal edict like Mordecai gave. Many years ago, I had a brother-in-law who loved the Lord, loved to, to serve him and share about him and uh, to worship him. And then one day, he was killed in a car crash. It was a mechanical failure uh, in the other vehicle. How is God good when the ones we love die before their time? Is God at work? When I can't see the reason for something that happens. When the result seems unfair to me or unjust for who I think God is. Is God hidden? Or is he gone? Is God still present? Still good? 
when I can't understand how he's working. The book of Esther is asking this question. And the author of Esther is giving an emphatic yes. Yes, God is still working. He is faithful to bring about his plans and his purposes, even when it's not obvious to us at first. Just look at the evidence in the story. God is faithful to care for his people and to preserve his plan and to, and to do what he said he would do even hundreds of years before he did it. Haman the Amalekite has rallied his people all over Persia to destroy the Jews. Hundreds of years earlier, God pronounced judgment against the Amalekites for the evil they had done in attacking Israel when they were vulnerable, having just fled Egypt. Is it just coincidence that judgment is being served here in Esther through the Jewish defense in Persia? After that initial event, God later called King Saul to completely destroy the Amalekites for their evil actions. But King Saul failed to do so, leading to God rejecting him as king. Is it merely a coincidence that now, hundreds of years later, Mordecai, a descendant of Saul, is put in a position to call the Jews to defend themselves so that these former proclamations of God would come about? It's a pretty remarkable coincidence, if you ask me. And then the number of coincidences that happen either to Esther and Mordecai to put them in a place to be able to reverse the result of Haman's edict of destruction are incredibly remarkable. Is it all coincidence? The author of Esther, I think, gives an emphatic no. It's not coincidence. Look at how God has worked over these hundreds of years and through these recent events in Persia, through Esther and Mordecai, God brings about the salvation of the Jews from the hands of their enemies who would seek to destroy them, turning their plans of their enemies against themselves and through the very event that they expected victory. In doing so, the plans and purposes of God through the people of Israel would continue. If this were a movie, this would be the moment to cheer. This is like when Captain America summons Thor's hammer in Endgame and you're like, yes, yes, I knew it. I knew it all along. And we knew it all along in Esther. We wanted and hoped desperately for God to be at work. And he is. He is at work. He is present. He has been working all along and through it all. When I was a young youth pastor, I had some difficult experiences where I felt like I wasn't free to lead. I felt trapped into doing many things that I wouldn't have chosen and then getting in trouble for doing those things. And I couldn't see how to change it. I was depressed. Um, and I was on the verge of losing my job. It all felt very unjust to me. And I couldn't see how God was working. It felt as if he was present, that maybe he was against me. 
And if I had been let go or resigned in that moment, I don't think that I would be in ministry today. I, I think that would have been the end for me, at least in a formal ministry capacity. I needed God uh, to intervene, and I, I needed his justice in that moment. And then a man who believed in me stood up for me. He, can, he convinced leadership to alter my position, give me a role outside of the scenario that bound me. And suddenly I was free. I had needed God's justice. Um, I couldn't see how he was working. And suddenly I was in a place where I could thrive. So that like in Esther, I could look back on the whole scenario and say, you were working. I wanted to believe that it was true. I hoped it was true. And it is true. And it's still true. God is present, still good, even when we can't understand how he's working. But wait, what of the problem of Mordecai's edict? If, if God has done this in Esther, if God has saved his people in this story, how can God be loving and good if he is calling for the total destruction of the Jewish enemies through Mordecai's edict? Is, is God fickle or, or holding some kind of divine grudge against the Amalekites? Well, first of all, no. God is not unjust or unmerciful. When we read through the Bible, we find that God has always stood against evil. And so in the Bible, we find God often pronouncing judgments against evil nations or individuals and letting them know that they will be destroyed for it. But upon hearing judgment, if they repent, God holds off and shows mercy. When people repent, God relents. It's a nice little rhyme. And God is not unmerciful, even in Esther. Mordecai's edict only gives permission to for them to destroy their attackers. So any Amalekites or other enemies of the Jews who repented of the evil of attacking them, you know, those the ones who stayed home instead of coming to fight, they would all have lived. It doesn't say that explicitly in the story, but it's implied um, by the edict itself of only it's uh, destroying the attackers. Secondly, it's important to remember again that it is unloving of God to allow evil to endure. Humanity is warned from the very beginning in Genesis that if we choose evil, we will surely die. Because it would be unloving of God toward the rest of creation to allow evil to go on unchecked forever. And so as the just judge, God limits evil through death. And we all need this justice. When we see injustice in our world or experience it in our lives, we need justice. We need to know that evil is a problem for God, that he cares, and that he is doing something about it. I think the, the hard part for me, and I, and I think for most of us, is that I don't like 
to read of God's justice being carried out against those, I think might be relatively good. And part of that is because I like to think that I'm relatively good. And I don't want to admit that I'm deserving of judgment. Because that is terrifying and humbling to me. Because deep down, I know that evil runs through my heart too. It runs through every human heart. I am deserving of God's judgment. We all are. And, and this admission, this humble realization, is the place for repentance. When we repent, God relents. Admitting the wrong that we've done, admitting to the evil in our own hearts and confessing that to God. Of course, justice demands that evil still be dealt with, which is why God's plan from the beginning was for Jesus to come, to take the punishment for evil when he died on the cross and pay the penalty in our place. As the fulfillment of the promise to bless the whole world, through the Jewish people. Jesus died the death that we deserve so that we could receive the life that only he deserves. Boy, that's a humbling realization. Is God good in his judgment and justice against evil? He sure is. And through Christ, he bears that judgment himself for all who put their trust in him so that mercy can be given to all who put their trust in him. In Christ and through him alone are justice and mercy fulfilled. Can you see how the same God who is faithful over hundreds of years to fulfill his judgment against the Amalekites as difficult as that is is the same God who is faithful to fulfill his promise through Israel to bless the whole world. And that God is faithful to fulfill his promise through Jesus. And that if God has sometimes uh, seems hidden, but is always faithful to fulfill his promise in those things, that God is still faithful to bring about his plan and his purposes today. We are not on our own. God has not left us. He is as present today as he has always been. And his ways are good. Even if it's hard, his ways are good. And his plan and his mission to save the world through Jesus Christ remains in motion. So what does that mean for you? For some, maybe this is a moment of repentance. To recognize the, the evil in your own heart. To confess it. And to trade it to Jesus for his goodness and his love. To say, Jesus, I need you to be my savior and I need you to be my life leader. Because I am not good enough and I cannot do this on my own. Or maybe for some, it's, it's a moment to repent of believing 
that God only works through perfect people or perfect situations. I know I need to hear that. And to believe that you might just be the imperfect person that God is working through. For some, maybe this is a moment to keep pressing forward in faith. To believe that even if God seems hidden and you can't quite see what he's doing or how he's working, to believe still that his purposes and his promises and his plans are still true and still good. To believe that his mission to make disciples who love God, one another in the world is still going on and that even if we can't meet in big groups on Sunday, the spirit is still moving to reconcile people to Christ. And we are still Christ's church together in the world to invite people into relationship with their Father in heaven and into our spiritual family. And maybe for some of you, this is a, a moment of worship. Maybe this is a moment to realize that the faithfulness of God and the move of God in time and history and in humanity is so much bigger and so more amazing than you previously thought. And to remember that God's justice and his mercy are fulfilled in Jesus. And that is just such good news. And that he is so much better than maybe you've previously realized. And that just moves you. And you can't help but love him and thank him and praise him because of all that he has done. Because our father is so faithful to us. And so Father in heaven, we thank you for your unending faithfulness to us. We thank you that you, um, that you have been at work through time and history to bring your purposes about, that you, um, that you have been and are at work to bring about your justice and that your justice is good and that in Jesus you offer us mercy and that your mercy is good. And, and Father, we need, we need both from you and we need to see our lord open our eyes to see um, how you're working allow us to be open um, to, to you uh, to to join you um, to believe in you for how you are working lord give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you and the courage to follow as you lead us we pray in Jesus' name, amen.